0: In Frothy is a special episode. Daggy and Ollie here, along with um, prominent Australian author Alan Whitaker. Rugby league and true crime, predominantly Al. Gentlemen, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back. We had a brief chat at the book launch uh, back at the end of last year. We did. And we just thought we'll, we'll have some time to sit down and spend a, a, an hour or so and have a proper chat this time. Uh, how's things? How are you enjoying the footy season so
1: far?
2: Well, Panthers are on top, so it doesn't get much better, does yeah. it? But uh, I think you guys, as students of the game, can see that the uh, competition's splitting already. You know, you've got your top six and then uh, you've got the rest. And, uh, As long as Penrith's near in the top six and competitive with the top six, then I think we'll have a good season. Yeah,
0: Uh, well, they've done a... It's a debate we've had. Actually, we'll already go down a tangent, but it's a debate we have about expansion and, and the actual talent pool right now. Do you think... Essentially, talent's an issue, roster management?
2: Roster management, I think, is the big issue. A lot of clubs are coming up short now, and it's not to say that good players aren't out there. I was talking to Ollie off air just before we started talking. You know, you look at a guy like Momoroski, you know, where did he come from? You know, Melbourne bench. So, given opportunities, there will be the players there to plug the gaps, but clubs have to be very Kenny now to handle their roster, manage their roster. Penrith seemed to have got it right. Right. We're in a very sweet spot at the moment. But, you know, God forbid we're successful and um, a few of these young blokes become test stars. How do you hang on to all of them? Um, yep. I, I think we're in a good place because we know the ones we want to keep and they're young. So we're planning, you know, five, six, seven years ahead. But for the new clubs, well then, having 18 competitive clubs, you know, it's probably going to be split even further. You're going to have teams that will struggle every year. Um, and, you know, you look back on history, Canberra were easy beats when they came in. Illawarra were flogged. Uh, probably the only team that just started off uh, up and running was Melbourne. Uh, Brisbane didn't make the semis the first couple of years they played. They didn't get the balance right. So... Uh, yeah I'm not against it I think it'd make it interesting but uh, yeah talent management is the issue
1: well you bring up a a Melbourne storm when they started up I believe was it John Rebo who was involved with them and I guess they'll sort of set up to succeed that that was the the thing that the NRL, NRL wanted if a Melbourne club was going to come in they had to be relatively successful straight away and they won a premiership in their second season it seems like this same sort of mentality will be the driving force for this new Brisbane club and I guess for the 18th club as well. Do you think... (laughs) with these new clubs coming in, the NRL will want them to be set up for success, let's just say, within their first five years or so. Sure. Yeah. Uh,
2: but, but this is the problem. Uh, when the Titans came in in 07, yeah. they made the semis the first year. I, from memory they made it the second year and then they just went down and they were wooden spooners within five years. And this is the problem if you put all your guns up front. You, know, you, 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 you put a side in uh, of uh, experienced uh, journeymen that you can attract to your club. When those players go, do you have the young players coming through? The problem with Melbourne, and Melbourne probably have the most to lose, because Melbourne have effectively been the second Brisbane side for 20 years. Yep. And they've been, um, you know, they've, they've had that feeder club up there. I think it's North Brisbane that has been, been their feeder club. And they've been really, really successful. So if a, if a second Brisbane club comes in, that's going to take a lot of their talent pool out yep. as well. And Melbourne have shown that they haven't been able to uh, develop Victorian talent. They, yes. just, they can't do it. Um, so... I think that's something the league has its eye on. Um, it's not about Brisbane not being competitive. It's about Melbourne not being competitive. It's just as big an issue.
0: Yeah, and, uh, well, we keep getting – we have people write in a lot and tell us how much talent there is in Queensland Cup and the like. And oh, for sure. Uh, but we just don't, obviously don't see it. Obviously, the the Cowboys roster isn't as strong as it'll be. I guess for, the, for a new expansion team coming in, it's almost like a clean slate's better than no slate, better than – if you're offered 500 at – at the Bombers or whatever, the Dolphins, whatever they may be. That's better than trying to go to Manly on 500 and, you know, you know know what you're walking into. you won't get 500 at Manly. Well, that's Uh, that's uh, the first issue. A lot
2: of players – and Phil Gould used to say this too, that it's like Christmas Day for – for uh, players, when uh, clubs were being set up, because that like, you play overs, yeah, yeah, you pay overs.
0: You to want a marquee? You want two marquees? Yeah. Whatever you want, yeah. yeah.
2: and and oh, we, we got well, we got to have a side. Yeah. You, you can't have club players or New South Wales uh, Cup players. Uh, you got to have some talent. So that's probably when. Uh, A lot of managers are rubbing their hands together. But, look, it's very hard. Um, uh, I asked Roy Simmons this uh, when Super League happened. Uh, I was doing a book with Royce, and I said, you know, do you think a 20-team comp would have worked? Because uh, the first NRL comp was a 20-team comp, I think in 98 and then it went down to 16, down yes. to 14. Yeah. And he said if they'd persevered with it and given it time, it would have because players would have yeah. risen to that level. So taking his advice, I would say yes, you know, an 18-team comp can win if it's given time. You know, the Crushers, uh, they had money in the bank. They were going yeah. well, but they were just sacrificed at the table of a, of a United competition. Yeah. So you don't want a second Brisbane side folding after three years you don't want a second New Zealand side dying after say five years yeah uh, they've persevered with the Titans and the Titans seem to have I thought the Titans would have folded four or five years ago actually um, they've persevered, essentially
0: they, the NRL refused to allow it didn't they they stepped and, in, yeah.
2: and, and and to their credit they backed them they put management in there I think Annesley went up there yep. and, and uh, now they are really part and parcel of that that stretch of land from the Gold Coast to uh, uh, oh yeah up up, um, uh, up that yeah palm beach area yeah. um away from brisbane and they've got their own identity and uh yeah yeah the, the league just have to back it so they wouldn't be bringing them in if, if it wasn't going to work
0: i think the problem with um the I, think that I was thinking about this the other day with the, the have-nots, let's call them this year, hmm. is that fans, you've got board members who don't necessarily follow the game maybe as closely as other – even probably as close as we do. They're on a board with other jobs and whatever else. Coaches are only ever given two years. Um, fans demand, like, an instant response. So they're not willing to accept a five-year – P- uh, plan. Penhoff did it and look without the end of the day, we've got to give them some credit. Yeah. But I guess Canterbury aren't willing to just say, no, we're going to run 14th for the next five years. And maybe the wheel's starting to turn for Canterbury. There's yeah. maybe hope there. But... Um by the time you try and set up a structure, the coach is already on the outer, and, and the next one's in, starting all over again. We see that—that that seems to be the theme for a lot of these. Have I, not. I sugars. think
2: fans are patient. I think fans.
0: Well, fans are, and I think oh, they're long-suffering. They you you have, know, you have to a, be. Oh, long-suffering. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, imagine being a pen of supporter in the well, like seventies. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm a tiger supporter now. Well, <laughs> you know, and but things yeah. go with cycle. Who would have thought? Five years ago, that Manly had be on That's the, right. on the yeah. bottom, and zero or Brisbane four. I suppose. Well, nobody had ever envisaged that Brisbane that might have a bad season. But yeah. wooden spooners, like, yeah. you know, can't imagine mm. that. Yeah. So I think, I think the true fan and the true rugby league you know, tragic, will wear four or five seasons of below-par um, performances, and this is where Canterbury's at at the moment, if they know that something is happening, something is coming. So Burton's coming next year, they should build a side around three or four players. Flanagan looks like he's finding his feet there. If they can build a side that, you know, starts winning more than they can losing. They'll make the semis and then they can, you know, yeah. as we found out last year, you know, making the semis is good enough for a lot of teams, but that doesn't mean you're going to win a premiership. No, that's right. And you almost,
0: some of those are just, make, you know, they're straight sets teams, you know, they're going to finish six, but you know yeah. Penrith and Melbourne, they put them straight out.
1: Well, the last club to win a premiership from outside the top four was Canterbury in 1995, I'm pretty sure, so before the, before the NRL era, so it's never happened in this era. So I guess, to a point that you keep bringing up, Daggy, in terms of, I guess, the talent pool and how close the competition is, it's really not as close, I guess, as people think, because we haven't had a, a team win the comp from outside the top four since 95. Yes, you can point to Parramatta of 09 or the Cowboys of 17 and say they got there, but at the end of the day, <laughs> they didn't get the job done. Uh, just a point you brought up before, Alan, as well, and you were talking about clubs playing paying overs for players. Manly Oringa, they've got D C on a mill, they got the Travojevic brothers on a mill, those are three players, the Cowboys, Holmes, M- Morgan, who might be medically retired, on a mill, and Taumalolo. The two clubs who have three players on at least a million dollars a year are the two worst clubs arguably in the competition right now. So that just proves your point, I guess.
2: Well, it does. And, uh, you know, that was a an entirely disorganised process when Cherry Evans you know it was going to the gold Coast on yep. a million and then yep. he, then he flipped to take 1.2 with his original club that should have been handled much much better you know uh, you know Bob Fulton was in charge or Ken Arthurson was in charge or you know somebody was in charge rather than uh, you know a private enterprise trying to get a quick fix yeah um, they would have realized that if you pay a player 1 point2 over say five six years that's eating into you salary cap and you you know, you can't buy those um, two and 300,000 uh, a year players who are going to augment him. So I think he's got uh, two more years, hasn't he? Two, I think so. Uh, two uh, two, two yeah. more years. And um, they can't go into the market because they're maxed out. Oh. So Canterbury got themselves into trouble. Penrith got themselves into a bit of trouble. You know, um, clubs can do that if they don't think ahead. And this is where I applaud South Sydney who are playing tough ball with uh, Adam Reynolds. Yeah. They've been burnt. We're going to play it by year by year. We're going to give you 12-month contracts like they did to John Sutton. And, you know, there's nothing sadder than a 32-year-old halfback running around on one leg. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to be tough and you got to be mentally tough um, they're doing it right many other clubs aren't doing it right, they haven't got their roster right and you know better judges than me you know Phil Gould and Brad Fittler and you know uh, guys on Fox Sports say the same thing week in week out look at their roster yeah
0: and uh and I guess East on doing it right and that they've set up a culture where players are happy to stay for that maybe 50 grand less when you go across 17 well, blokes well, in, in theory <laughs> yeah, let's well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt why
2: are they yeah <laughs> uh, uh yeah
0: when you go across 17 blokes that ups to adds up to whatever
2: it adds up to. There are a lot of urban about that East that I won't delve into only to say is that you're right. Yeah. I I can't believe that some players are so gullible and and I use a player that I've got a lot of affection for, Tyrone Peachy. Mm. Tyrone Peachy uh, was coming off the bench at Penrith and he probably didn't like that but Tyrone is not an 80-minute player. He he probably is now but at the time he he was making a real impact, a real match winner off the bench. Um... His manager organised a... a big contract in the Titans and he's gone to an underperforming club. I didn't even know Tyrone Peachy was playing the other week. Yeah. And I, I saw him do a couple of clever things and I thought, Oh that's great Tyrone's but you know, three years ago he had the world at his feet. Now he's playing for a for a for a club that gets no press down here. He's not being spoken about the great thing that he does. Yes the Titans are in top eight contention and that's great. But he's not a standout player. With the Panthers and when we were playing well when we were making the semis with Matty Moylan and yeah. those players, Tyrone Peachy was the gun. Yeah. So this is what players. And he, ne- a real f- he was loved, like all Panthers oh. of, of fans. Had a lot of affection. Ended Lover. up playing yeah. Origin two in his last oh. year at Penrith, didn't he? He uh, he was he was, a, he was yeah. a non-playing. Uh, yes, he played one Origin. Yeah. And he was a non-playing kangaroo for Melbourne Inga. Yeah. Uh, he and uh, Rinkle, uh, Regan Campbell gillard But the point is, is that players ne- and managers need to say to themselves: Do I want to take more money with a struggling club? or stay where I am on on unders and be in a club that are getting all the press. Because... You know, a lot of them cut their own throats uh, in chasing the money. And I, I get it. They've got 10, ten years. They've got to get a, a really top contract. Um, but at some point, they log look after the money. I don't know too many um, managers. I wouldn't want to be one. I wouldn't want to know too many of them. Um, they're looking after themselves. Yeah. They're trying to get the best for their players. But they've bought many a, many a non-disciplined club undone yeah. chasing uh, players. And as long as we have the salary cap, and fine, we've got the salary cap, cap but as we know the salary cap does not even out the competition Yeah, that's used, right. used to but now player managers manipulate it yeah. clubs manipulate it players manipulate it Yeah,
0: you know? player managers with coaches yeah. who are managing coaches as well wow. it it well
2: I guess that's
1: where me and Adrian have disagreed on the whole talent pool situation because he's been firm in saying that the talent pool isn't big enough for 18 teams I believe it is but the problem is all the talent are at a few clubs it's not, it, it's not distributed either
2: Because players want to play with a successful club. And if I'm playing for East, and East always make the top four, well, then I'm going to take unders. Um, See, look at Penrith now. You know, Penrith have their marquee players, and they're bringing in fringe players who are sliding in really well, but they're not on big money. Um, and then
0: the, your yeah, Spencer Linus and your Leodas of the world are happy to stay here and just live where they've grown up, be part of the crew oh, they've absolutely. grown up with and play for 400000 put a roof here at their heads and be happy.
2: And getting back to your point about the Roosters is that uh, Roosters players don't play where they grew up <laughs> yeah. because they've got yeah, Exactly. Um, so they've got to recruit very well. They're also very ruthless, you know. They got rid of yeah. Kyle Flanagan pretty ruthlessly last year, and people will say, "Well, he's finding his feet at uh, Canterbury." Uh, maybe uh, they did the right thing, but it's a pretty ruthless business, yeah. as, as you know.
0: But also, incredible that Roosters are able to get rid of someone so easily when other clubs
2: <laughs> because can't. <Yeah>. well, <laughs> yeah.
0: well Can- Canterbury, you know,
2: they yeah. they snap up anybody because they want yeah. they, they want to get some talent. In there. Yeah,
0: uh, let's well let's go back through. Let's go back to the start with, um, I guess, the Penrith team growing up in. A, a growing rugby league community in Penrith. Mm. Um, I guess take us back to how that was, and then we've got uh, Ollie's. Old man Ollie's here as well. He was part of that with you, but um, Eddie, yeah, uh, yeah. The growth of Penrith, I guess, from the start. Uh, your own footy story, I guess, from from being a kid.
2: Well, the great thing about growing up in Penrith is that, uh, and I may have said this before, so I'll try and um, say it differently. But uh, Penrith was a country town when we were growing up. You know, where I lived on Parker Street with my parents, you know had the house for 50 years it was a dirt road and now it's a six-lane highway yeah so many people came to penrith because they loved the country town feel And when uh, Penrith had a viable um, rugby league community here before 1967 and then the league, um, you know, not so bravely or smartly, you know, I think they had to be dragged kicking and screaming, they promoted Penrith and we were the fringe Sydney-basin team.
1: Is it true that it came down to Penrith and Cabramatta? No, Wentworthville. went with with, Sorry, I knew
2: it was one of the Parramatta clubs, yeah. And that would have been a disaster for Parramatta. Yeah. Now, Penrith... um, Um, because we were further out from uh, Parramatta and we had a very viable competition here Um, you know we got the nod and uh, that started I suppose the ball rolling for a whole generation of of young people like myself who uh, on any given Saturday or Sunday could go down and and see this wonderful drama unfold and in those days four tackle rule uh, as I saw it in 1968 first game that I went to I still remember it and um It was very much a man on man game. Um, You only had four tackles, there was probably a little bit too much kicking, far too many scrums, far too many um, penalties. But it was a very skillful and dramatic game. and uh, yeah, I just got hooked. Uh, you know, just coming down with my dad and my brothers and sisters, and standing on the hill, sitting on the hill. Yeah, uh, it was great. And you know, your expectations weren't that high because you know, every now and then, maybe once a month, we'd have an upset, but the other three weeks we'd get you know bolted or flogged, or or it is often the case we we're desperately unlucky because we just didn't have not that we didn't have good players, we had great players. You know, uh, we had we had players. Who played above their weight and tried their hardest, but we didn't have that match winner. We didn't yeah. have that—that that, I suppose spark. Uh, we had just just had a, a team that on a, on its day could cause a big upset. The other thing, the psychology of coming out to Penrith in those days—you know, there was no M4 yeah. you had to come up the Great Western Highway. So you imagine South Sydney—they yeah. would have had to have left <laughs> Cleveland Street, yeah. you know, a good nine o'clock in the morning. By the time we get out here, they've had 500 stop signs, 500 sets of lights. Are we here yet? Are we here yet? You know, Penrith uh, in the 1960s was on the outskirts of Sydney, as it still is today, but the roads were not fantastic, you know. People used to make jokes all the time, oh, you know, you live in Penrith, you have to put your watches back and all yeah. that sort of stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. oh, hillbillies, you know, country, yeah. country folk. Um, and we didn't mind that, but the psychology of those sides coming out here, many of them were exhausted before they even got, got off, and they didn't have tour buses or anything like that. They all came out individually, you know, yeah. um, and they brought their families out. Then a couple of sides started getting um, smart and maybe staying overnight. Of course, the club would get them on the beer the, the night before and yeah. wine and dine them and look <laughs> after them and, oh, how good is this? and can't believe how, how, how long has this been happening. And then they'd wake up the next day and get belted again. Yeah. So it was good. It was good. And it was probably, you know, a great life lesson not to have a winning side you know you, you learn to be humble you learn to be patient you learn not to have too high expectations but when it happened boy was it exciting you know you'd go to school and everyone would be buzzing you know uh, we used to laugh you know when we were teenagers and that you know, the people that would go off to work on a Monday because their team beat St. George or South Sydney. Yeah. You know, the boys got up, it was just totally infectious. So that that got me hooked. So I want to jump a few years into
1: the future, actually. You bring up, I guess, the down period of Penrith. When they first came into the comp, they weren't a very successful Mm -hmm. club. 1985, Penrith make their first final series. I believe they actually beat Manly Warringah in the first week of the finals. That's usually replayed on Fox a fair bit. Um, what changed as a Penrith supporter, as someone living in Penrith, what changed in the town and what changed at the club, I guess, for them to actually be successful in 85. And then of course, eventually go on to make the grand final in 90 and win it in 91. What had changed about Penrith, I guess the club and the town
2: for that to happen? Well, what happened was and I've just written about this because we were talking off air before um, I'm doing another book with Tony Loxley publisher who uh, did uh, League on um league on Sunday work on Monday we're doing a book on the 80s and I actually wrote a chapter on this just recently the success that Penrith had in the mid 80s three things happened the league's club took over the running of the football club so in uh, just like Canterbury uh, today there were two separate entities so that was a uh, um a, uh, a position of a lot of infighting you know a lot of jealousy with the board a lot of backstabbing yeah. board members telling players you're the best you know getting in people's ears trying to run the club so the other thing was a lot of wasted money you know so for all, all through the 70s Penrith wasted money chasing big players chasing coaches that didn't work, and so, you know, to his credit, Roger Cowan at the Lees Club said, you know, that's it, you know, we've had... 15, 16 years since 1967. We've had no success. Never never made a semi-final. Never won a premiership, obviously. And never had a test player after 17 years. Yeah. So he said, that's it. We're we'll bring it all under one umbrella and we're going to look after things from the administration side, streamline everything. That was the first thing that they did that got Penrith back on track. Yeah. The second thing they did was they asked Tim Sheens to come back to the club as coach. Yeah. So Tim Sheens was a long-serving player, played lot of reserve grade wasn't wasn't a big forward, just a very good club player. had a good had a good ball game. wasn't an enforcer, but it was a very smart footballer. Yeah, they cut him at the end of '82, and uh, he went out to uh, Campbelltown and won the uh, Group Six competition out there. Okay. I was going to ask where he came from, yeah. So yeah, from... well, he's a Penrith boy. He grew up here. Yeah,
0: he's, uh... he was coaching at Campbelltown. And...
2: Yeah, but, yeah. but he, he was captain coach at uh, Campbelltown and won yeah. the premiership there. And they said, let's bring Tim Shingles back as coach because he knows. Culture. Then the third thing and the most important thing was uh, a player called Greg Alexander was graded, and uh, I, I can't say this, you know, Brandy doesn't need me patting him on the back or whatever, but history will show that Greg Alexander was the first um, match winner that we had come through. You know, we we had good players before him. We had Kevin Dan. Uh, great player, Roy Simmons. You know, hard worker. Uh, Brad is a uh, uh, you know really dynamic player, but we had no on-field general that could bring the whole side together yep. and in the flick of a switch, win a match yep. by themselves. You know, some of the things I saw Brandy Alexander do in '84, '85, '86, you know, were just unbelievable. You know, his ability to chip, kick, scoop up a ball one-handed, he swerve, his step, goal kicking from the side and he was in an era of very, very good halfbacks and he he was just brilliant so by building a team around him uh, Penrith started winning so in 84 they had to win the last game Uh, at Penrith Park against the defending premiers, Parramatta of all people, to make the semis and we got beat. But 20,000 people showed up, uh, standing room only and and Penrith had learnt to win. The next year, we built on that and um, they defeated Manly in a midweek playoff Um, at the SCG, which I went to with a couple of friends. It was history in the making. We won that uh, 10-7. may have even been extra time. I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's one of the games that's on Fox a fair bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, Manly-Penry. It was 7-0 full-time, and we won it after a period of 10 minutes extra. time. The problem is is that we were knackered by the time. We had it front-up against Parramatta uh, on the Monday – sorry, on the Saturday – and we got belted. Yeah. So Penrith learnt well. What that's what it took. But it took Penrith another five years to become semi-finalists. You know, we'd be on the edge on the cusp in the late 80s, and then um, uh, in 1989, we uh, finished second, had a great year under Ron Willey, uh, we had Brad Fittler coming through, we had local juniors, John Cartwright, uh, Matty Guy, uh, and um, of course, Brad Izard, as I said before, uh, coming through. So that's when it all fell into place. But to go to that next level of becoming grand finalists, you can't uh, uh, underestimate the role Phil Gould came in this coach because he'd won a premiership with, with Canterbury Yes, he was a tough character. Yes, he was prickly. Yes, he wanted his own way. But Gould was a winner, and uh, he galvanised that side. We made the, made the grand final in 1990, and the next year, history proved that uh, yep. you know, we'd come a long way from that mid-'80s. Uh, take us through,
0: I guess, what that meant for Penrith and, and the Town 91 itself. Um, we've, we've had Royce on the show. He, he's a tremendous yeah, storyteller. A legend, Royce. Uh, so just, just a
2: legendary guy. And he said it. When, when he, uh, you know, held the trophy up, he said, you know, this is for the people of Penrith, you know. I oh, know that was Greg Alexander. Yeah. On the sideline, the sideline, I asked him, what does this mean? He goes, well, it means we're somebody. Yeah. And that was it. We were no longer the Easy Beats. we were no longer the Chocolate Soldiers. We were no longer the joke of the competition. Yes, we had been all those things in certain years. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, I look back to my son, Tim, who's 35 now, but he was five years old in his first year of school. Yeah. And then in his HSC, Penrith won it in 2003. Yeah. So his whole school life yeah. was bookended by two premierships. So his mindset being a Penrith supporter was completely different to my mindset, my mindset yeah. where we won nothing in eight yeah, years when yeah. I was at school yeah. and we'd go to school on a Monday morning and we'd just lament what are we going to do you know you had to be a Penrith supporter uh, and plenty of people opted out plenty of people yeah. growing up wanted to be a St George supporter yeah. or a Manly supporter or a South Sydney supporter because they were the winners yeah. the tried and true many of your listeners no, nah, yeah. you're born and bred the The residential qualification rule <laughs> you're Penrith yeah. well we, yeah we are well I started I, I
0: think I spoke to you about it last time but I went to school just up here we were in the were in the back literally lived across the road mm-hmm. so we'd have they'll be come over kick the balls with us at lunchtime they'd be always a feature for the guys and um, or Freddie or um, oh. to a lesser extent the Alexanders we had a whole service for Ben when that happened um, so it was just a and 03 obviously was different obviously yeah. I was again yeah, graduating old, high school as well. how was 03 in comparison for you and
2: that oh, well, completely
0: different team obviously and
2: 03 was a pleasant surprise because you know you guys would know you know your rugby league that we finished last in I think 01 yeah. yes Roycey got uh, sacked yeah um, and that was that was a funny year because we had a very good side that year the year before we'd done very well uh, made the semis with Ryan Girdler and all those players yeah. nothing went right in 01 for some reason whether the players Lost confidence, or Royce lost confidence, or whatever. But he was, the, he was the fall guy. So with uh, um, Richardson and Leng coming out, you know, the Cronulla connection, you know, they had had a bit of success. And I remember interviewing them both before the start of the year. You know, too, there was no expectation. You know, no, no, we just, you know, and there were some hard lessons to be learnt in 02 you know they sacked a few players and fired them up and said you know good people are paying their money and you're dishing up rubbish so when 03 came along it was just a pleasant surprise you know i think we lost our first game or the second game no no we lost the first two games we were last on the on the premiership 100 to 1 and then we started winning. And what I always thought about the 03 game, the O three season, was that uh, that was when our interchange bench won it for us. I thought mm. I thought we had a very well balanced interchange bench, and that was when the interchange, after about five or six years, was becoming a, a pivotal part yep. of of the game so I think we got our bench right um, and we had uh, fantastic yep. uh, halfback uh, and also uh, Gower got shifted from hooker to fi- to halfback yep. Ryan Gerdler even though he was a couple of years past his best had a great season uh, we had muscle up front um, you know Recy Wesser was scoring tries all over the yeah, place 25 tries I yeah, think. still yeah. holds the record for a full back um, our wingers Lukey Lewis Luke Rooney, It was just a really well-balanced side, um, and it was wonderful. Yeah, I loved it. We probably should have won a premiership five years ago to, to get that 10-year balance yeah. <laughs> um, up, but yeah. for whatever reason, and we made the final, didn't we? We yeah. beat yeah. by Canterbury in the final. We probably should have won that. I don't know if we would have won that year. Uh, 14 that, in yeah, the against Canterbury. That was South yeah, city's yeah. yeah. year, and they yeah. deserved yeah. that premiership. Yeah. But, that, but that side was good enough to win a premiership, and then yeah. we've had to go through a few... Yeah. Reconfigurations now, so if it happens this year, I'll be pleasantly surprised again. But um, as as a Penrith supporter, you know, from 1968, that's 53 years. You know, they don't come along very often. Yeah, yeah. two out of 53. Yes. Yeah. you know, with we, you one now, that'll be three out of 53. Yeah. yeah. So you just got to take them and enjoy them. Yep. I just wanted to bring up 2020 quickly because y- you
1: talk oh. about the town the of Penrith, well, the season in general, because you talk about the town of Penrith in '91 and 03. I look at 2020 and I've always been a rugby league fan growing up so it, it didn't really have too much an impact on me but I have just plenty of mates who aren't even rugby league fans they now go down to the pub every week whenever Penrith are playing and watching because of 2020 and i know heaps of people i'm just sort of looking at it from my generation's point of view i guess because i guess 2020 would be my generation's year if not 2021 and i used to notice going to penriff games and i would see through friends on social media i'd see at the game it was a social event whereas sort of people my age they'd get together with their friends they'd go to the game but they wouldn't actually watch Watch the game; they just muck around and stuff, and you'd see that a lot with the younger generations. I, I
0: but I have noticed, half a dozen mates yeah. who don't follow Penrith, but are Penrith members. Yeah, yeah. just because they go yeah. every game. Yeah.
1: But the thing is, now I see people my age and a bit younger in high school, um, guys and girls, going to Penrith games and they're actually watching, cheering on. You know, I, I know plenty of people who wouldn't have known any NRL player's name at the start of last year, and now they know the Panther side back to front and they watch every game. And I, I guess winning, that, that's all it is, winning. It doesn't, winning take, doesn't yeah. take
0: much, does it? Yeah. The,
2: the <laughs> it thing is, win. is that what people don't appreciate, it's a little bit different now because of restrictions and whatever, but you know, I can remember when my daughter was uh, 14 and 15, and that would be you know, almost 20 years ago, um, she loved it like I loved it because all your mates were down there she'd she'd have her girlfriends and then they'd meet you know boys from other schools and sit and talk and whatever that social dynamic with Penrith is very important and my son uh, you know stands on the hill I stand with him now I I gave up my seat in the the grandstand a couple of years ago but um, the same five or six young guys are always there we have a great joke we we um you know, I'm 62-ish now, and uh, five of my mates come and stand beside us yeah. as well. So we have that generation as well. So that that collegiality, being part of the, the rugby league community, is very, very important. And Penrith have done it very well. Um, you know, it's great seeing families on the family hill. Yeah. It's great seeing young kids running around. Um, you know, I was desperately disappointed when they uh, built the Chairman's Lounge on the hill. You know, I used to slide down the yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've done that for forty years. The, the two tragedies of that, and when they got rid of the
0: Parramatta Hill, Parramatta Hill was the, yeah. just for sitting. Was a, just the right angle for yeah. sitting on. <laughs> it was a great hill, and they they, fent, they put unfortunately,
2: seats. it's progress. But um, yeah. getting to. Um and Penrith's very lucky like i 'm sure and i 'm sure this was done, but i 'm sure that if, if somebody did some research about how much money having a rugby league team brings into Penrith mm. uh, either either through uh, membership uh, membership of the club or even just rival teams coming here on that night and, yeah. and eating up here and, yeah. and whatever it 's worth millions to Penrith yeah, so we don 't want ever to lose that. Um, Penrith is a rugby league town. Always will be a rugby league town, and uh, you know it, it, it's great that young families that now live out here. You know Penrith's just wall to wall houses now. You know, yeah. gone all the market gardens are gone, and all the all the land's gone. But it is great that they've got someone to cheer for. It's crazy to think. That back in '67, the
1: at, at the time, I believe the NSW RFL were considering Penrith or Wentworthville. Y- you would think yeah. Penrith would be the easy choice between those two towns, especially with Parramatta already in the comp, right? Like, could you imagine if they had gone with Wenty, they, uh, they would not be around today? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess essentially when it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I wasn't around, but essentially when it was a Sydney based comp, it probably made sense just with another team I guess, 10 minutes yeah. up the right. They had
2: a very powerful leagues club and they yeah. still have a very powerful league, yes, yeah. uh, Wenty, um, and uh, they put a lot of money into that local community, but I think Parramatta actually got edgy about this. You know, They didn't mind losing Penrith, because yeah. Penrith was part of the Parramatta competition, yeah. but they, they couldn't afford to lose Wentworthville right next door to them, huh? yeah. so I think they secretly got behind it as well. Um, the league are not known for uh, audacious uh, moves, yeah. Um, and I think that was a good one that they, they bought Penrith in. Uh, you know, uh, Penrith Park was a cow paddock with a fence around it. Yeah. We had a grandstand without a roof. You know, yeah. held a hundred people. The um, the change rooms, not that I ever got invited into them, were you know like a public toilet, um, cold showers. Uh, they told me that. Um, Uh, the first club secretary Merv Cartwright he lived at St Mary's and many of the players would go back to Merv's place and have a shower back there because (laughs) 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 even the visiting players (laughs) would go back there and have a shower at Merv's and then stay there and have uh, dinner and have a big party because they knew they'd get a hot shower unlike Penrith but you know from humble beginnings here we are Um, you know we've got a very viable competition and you know hats off to the Penrith Lees Club and hats off to Gould uh, for rescuing the uh, the, the sports centre yeah. of excellence yeah and hats off uh, to the local community for getting behind it because those players are now very well looked after they've got great facilities that wasn't always the case.
0: And last, just lastly on Penrith, how important's been, I guess, the expansion west or the, the yeah. scouting west to the Penrith success in, in terms of, you know, Forbes, Ferrari, and I believe Nadens from... Uh, there's a couple from Dubbo,
1: I
2: believe, Dubbo is boys, Dubbo? and there's some, yeah. some other, M. Bathurst, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's very important for Penrith, because Penrith has always been a favourite of New South Wales country people, mm. you know, because we're close to the country. Yeah. So... It makes a lot of sense to promote kids. The problem is uh, in the old days, you know, they used to have city versus country and the country people would come down and then go, oh, he's a good player. He's a 25-year-old goal kicker. If you're any good now by the age of 18... You're in a system. You're in a system yeah. and you're in the city anyway. So that's why city country is a joke and they got rid of it. Yeah. But what Penrith are doing, they're putting money into education and signing up 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds and putting them back home. Yeah. There's no point bringing... Fifteen-year-olds to Penrith, yeah, and uh, corrupting them, you know. Keep them there. Keep an eye on them. And it it does hurt when players like Matt Burton go to another club because Penrith had so many years of developing the kid. Yeah. But what we're doing is a good thing, you know. You, you can't. We've proven you can't have five halfbacks in a side. Yeah. You know. Uh, we're just very, very lucky that at this time we've got a plethora of, of, of great halves. But what they're doing, investing in education. And kids in the local area. You know, we got Yo from Forbes, I think, and we got you know uh, Naden. And uh, we've got other players coming through. Uh, where did Edwards come from? He came
0: from he's out there. He's from, I think, south, though. Might be. No, he's out that way. I yeah. Can't yeah. yeah, out west somewhere. Yeah, he's out so, west. Uh,
2: you know, Essentially, the,
0: the, most of the back line is bar the Colton boys, I suppose. Or yeah, the, yeah, and Staines. Yeah, and Staines, uh, Staines and yeah. boys, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Um, so, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic management. And, you know, not so surprising, we're doing well because it were well managed.
0: You touched on Super League earlier. How big a story was that at the time? I was only, I guess, 12, so I don't, I remember it well, was a thing. I remember watching two grand finals, and uh, obviously it's where we got to. Do you cover a lot of it in your writing, or have you? Or well, or was probably, it more from an outsider's point of view at that
2: time? Well, I started writing in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And so I'd had a couple of books published when State of Origin, State of Origin, Super League happened. When Super League happened publishing stopped for three or four years because people didn't didn't know what's going to happen. And everyone was covering the Super League war. So, you know, the grand final books that I was writing and a few other biographies that I was writing... Just all of a sudden stopped. I, I, I didn't get anything published in five years, oh. because was there a fear of taking sides? Or yeah, was it, yeah. Also, the game was in a state of flux. You didn't know where everything was yeah. going to go. Look, it, it was a crap fight. It was badly done, badly managed. The league didn't see it coming. The league were warned it that it was going to happen, and they still didn't. They just thought, oh no no, we're, we've got a license to print money here. We're just going to stay with the status quo. It was done for for. For some of the right reasons, but it was done incredibly wrong. Yeah, uh, you know Brisbane very selfishly, you know just you know split the competition into uh, the Murdoch press, you know took sides, and then Packer, who who shorted up the ARL New South Wales Rugby League, uh, jumped ship straight away on a business decision anyway and started covering Super League games anyway. So it was really uh, human nature at its worst. Mm. The media. At its worst, and uh, and greeted as worse. Um, I don't think anything good came out of it. <laughs> yeah, really looking back on it. Yeah.
1: Well, I I have a couple of questions as someone who wasn't born. <laughs> for, well, the Super League war really yeah. started in '95. I was born five years later. Yeah. But I've heard from many people. and even from back then. The yeah. 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 Well, this is just what I've heard from people, and I want to get your opinion on it. First things first. A lot of people who I see say in hindsight everyone really probably should have gone towards the Super League's way as today the game more mirrors the what the Super League had envisioned for Rugby League and another thing is that teams like uh, the Western Reds, Adelaide Rams, etc., would still be around today if not for that war so i guess for national expansion it also had a negative impact so what i want to ask is do you agree that we would have been better off if everyone was just like right we'll all jump on this super league train because the game is more like that today anyway and do you believe if not for a super league war we would still have teams such as the western reds Mm. your adelaide rams etc
2: no i don't think so um The Super League exposed the holes in the game because once you split into two and all your resources were split into rival competitions, you saw where the gaps were. And one thing that we learned uh, about uh, the Western Reds especially is that they were too isolated, even though they gave us another time zone for a a TV match. They're too isolated. And then... Uh, Super League made every mistake in the book just through money, bad money. You know, Adelaide Rams. Why you would have a rugby league club in Adelaide yeah. who don't give a rat's about the game? I have no idea. You're never going to succeed. They probably said the same thing about Melbourne, but Melbourneites love sport, yeah. any any sport. Yeah, and they look at the Grand Prix. They just adopted it. They also own. nothing else to do in Melbourne, so that helps. That well, they've only got AFL, yeah, so you know so that wears out after yeah. a couple of weeks. So yeah. they are sports going people. So they yeah. they do do love it. Anyone who. Spent a week in Adelaide, and I spent a lot of time in Adelaide over the years. Um, there's nothing to do in Adelaide, and and you know it's just far too isolated. Yeah. So, what they did wrong with Super League? Uh, Murdoch won the, Su- well, the Super League war. Super League won the Super League war. Murdoch Mur- won. Yeah. Well, that's why we're watching games on Fox that's these right. days. Yeah. yeah. The fact that. And and Packer stuffed us up. But the fact that the league couldn't see that Murdoch the Raider was coming with pay TV. Pay TV had been happening in America for 10, 10, 15 years. You know, way back to the uh, late 70s, early 80s. So the fact that they couldn't see past their own experience. The other thing is they were very... antagonistic towards privately owned Brisbane and Brisbane were shaking in the cage and so they wanted, they wanted, they regretted the fact that they promoted Brisbane and they wanted Brisbane to to choke on the line and they they didn't want to give Brisbane a, you know, a, a heads up or anything. So they held their ground. What I believe, what should have happened was that the two comps should have stayed in two conferences. Yeah. They should have had a Sydney conference, which could have been run by the New South Wales Rugby League, yeah. and an out sydney conference that could have been run by Murdoch. That way, Murdoch would have had to pick up all the um, travel costs. And yeah. at, at the end, you have a Super Bowl with the two leagues coming in. Yeah. The only thing with that problem is, as we've seen over the years, is that Murdoch, who has a bottomless pit of money and... and, and uh, the New South Wales League doesn't is that they would have probably uh, got a lot of the, the players away from the New South Wales yeah. Rugby League. Yeah. But the New South Wales Rugby League had two things that Murdoch didn't have. They had State of Origin. They owned State of Origin. Yeah. Uh, you probably haven't seen it, but uh, Super League tried its own try series yeah, I, yeah, well, I remember watching it in New yeah. Zealand and Belfast. Yeah. And it was rubbish. Yeah. You know, Even though it was a good game, one game went for, what, 108 yeah. minutes? Or something. Yeah. New
0: Zealand to New South Wales, I think, was
2: one. Yeah, you know. yeah because they, they had... Uh, Golden Point, yeah, uh, indefinite Golden Point, yeah, yeah, very exciting. So, the New South Wales Rugby League had that ace in the hole, and then the New South Wales uh, Rugby League also ran the ARL. They had international football, yeah, yeah. So they could have held out, and what they should have done, even though Penrith went Super League, um, uh, Canterbury went Super League, uh, they, they could have bought them back and say, "Look, you're part of here, part of Penrith." Yeah. Or if they wanted to uh, stay with Super League, they could have had cross conference. And, yeah. and had some Super League teams down here in Penrith. I think it would have been a much better competition. Whereas now we're looking at expansion, and we still have that inequality of Sydney-based, too many Sydney-based teams, and um, and a lot of isolated, uh, uh, out of Sydney teams. Yeah. So, what did we learn? We learnt that throwing a, a bunch of money, hundred million dollars, five hundred million dollars, at a problem doesn't fix the problem, and that. The league didn't know what a good thing it had, and they capitulated because they bled money trying to uh, trying to keep pace with Super League, and they were effectively broke when the NRL uh, put the game back together. Yeah. And they gave away all their bargaining tools. They, you know, they they just gave it away, and it was such a shame. But you know, looking back on it now, you know, would Super League have have happened anyway? Yes the New South Wales really shot themselves in the foot you don't promote four teams in one season ridiculous you know play uh, Sydney based teams got jittery especially Penrith that's why Penrith went to Super League that through uh, natural attrition uh, Sydney teams would go broke Quinala would go broke Penrith who had a big uh, financial problem at the time they would go broke and they would just you know go the way of uh, Newtown and Glebe and Annandale and the old team Teams. Yeah, and the league were happy with that, and and Arthurson stupidly um, came out with that statement. Oh, well, those teams will just go through natural attrition. So everyone got jittery. Yeah, you know, Penrith, what are we going to do? Well, Was, wasn't there talks so we were going to merge with Parramatta for a bit? There were mergers all over the place. Right, mergers yeah. being offered. Yeah, we used to joke on the hill. Oh, we're going to be the West West Panthers. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the the Penrith Eels. Oh God, <laughs> you know, fate worse than death. Um, all that. Was, was in that state of flux uh, during the Super League wars. Uh, I don't think Penrith needed to go, but Roy Simmons explained it to me and he was um, the coach at the time when they went. He said, they said we were safe. Um, geographically, we should have been safe. Yeah. have got the biggest junior league in uh, the world. Yeah. We've got to be safe. Yeah. But we're also just far enough out of Sydney, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, yeah. But look what they did to South Sydney Foundation yeah. Club won the right. most premierships. They were the first to go. Yeah. Um, so Penrith had to shore up their position, and it was done for the done for the right reasons, but the wrong way. And that pretty much sums up Super League anyway. But here we are. You know, we've got a viable pay TV um, system. We've got it uh, free to air for people who don't want to do pay. We've got a a pretty good competition that now we're, we're realising is inequitable because the salary cap is not not uh, uh, equitable. Um, it's an exciting time for rugby league. It's an exciting time. The, the game is good, although it's not the game that I watched in the 60s. Not yeah. In, yeah. yeah. It's a different game. It's an athletic game. Um, we'll get on to,
0: just because we sort of we're heading that direction, the modern game. How much do you currently enjoy the product? Uh, is it as good as ever? Obviously... We sell, Ollie, more so with his page. Uh, rugby League, in my opinion, gets all the usual five times a week. Well, this isn't even Rugby League anymore. And, it, but how much do you know?
1: No, it's just for me to add a bit of context. I do a bit of research into, you know, stuff like crowds and how much money the game reports that they make these days. And it seems that fi- pre-COVID, you know, the game, in, in terms of the NRL era, w- we had a couple good years financially. We were in the green for the first time, I think it was, in 2018. Sustained that in 2019. We're also, obviously the crowds aren't great, but we're still averaging around you know, 12,000, 13,000, which is probably around the same as they would have back then, except the stadiums are a bit bigger. So, from my point of view, at least, the game is, at least statistically, as popular, if not more popular in terms of viewership, I guess, as it was back then. I just sort of want to get your opinion on that and if the game actually is a better product today and more popular today than it was back then.
2: Well, I suppose the, the best way to have people turning off your podcast is for me as an old bloke to say it was much better in my day and blah, blah, blah. Now, lots of people
0: agree with you, though, so that's a thing. So.
2: It was a, a different game. As I said before, it was more a more man-on-man game, but it's also a lot more violent. There's a lot more yeah. um, back play, yeah. uh, off-the-ball play, a lot more violence, and I don't miss that at all, yeah. you know. So the game today is very exciting. Very exciting. You know, what wingers can do today, wingers before, you know... Even, I
0: guess, the Bob Fulton rule with just the corner posts, uh, he got rid of that being a touchline, and look at what that's done for the modern
2: game now. Absolutely. And, um, you know, even even the fact that um, uh, wingers... You know, brings so much excitement to the game. And uh, players are are obviously a lot more athletic as well. You know, they're fitter. They're also rock harder, which which is why we're getting a lot of concussions. You know, it's like running into a brick wall physically. But just like any sport, including uh, especially rugby union, there comes a tipping point where if you change the game's fabric too much and we're almost there I can see it with Volandi's Six again rule as well. You know, we changed it last year. It worked. Fantastic. We changed it twice more. Now, yeah. I don't think it is working.
0: Uh, and, and both those changes, I could. There was no reason for it. It just no. it was change for the sake of change. Which,
2: well, obviously somebody have... got into his ear, and he's got to be careful of this. He's a very astute uh, yeah. practitioner. But you know, if I bowled him up at a party and I said, "Want I want scrums to come back?" Would scrums come back? You know, yeah. you, there's got to be a reason for it. There was no reason to change. And I agree, and uh, I think um, the game is getting very close to you know thirteen backs playing with thirteen backs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I threw out a theory that we might see eventually
0: body shape changes where yeah. you know, people will be training to lose ten kilos rather than have your big boys and, and be you don't want to get touch footy stage, but you're going to be.
2: You're still ninety
0: kilo sort of bodies more than 110 kilo well, bodies.
2: Right? You know, Bob Fulton said to me, uh, I interviewed him a couple of years ago, he said in his day wingers were 80, yeah. 80 kilos ringing wet yeah. and the forwards were 110 yeah. and now your wingers are 120 yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, as heavy as your forwards. So it's a different game. Um I thoroughly enjoy watching mobility. Yeah. Yeah. but I look at you know during grand final week uh, Fox has the old games on Yeah. so you might see a 1991 grand final yep. with Penrith uh, count the tackles Count how many tackles are made during the game. You know, I think there were some stats out that you know there's now more, a uh, hundred more tackles, yeah. in a modern match than was say twenty, well, thirty years ago. Yeah. So we don't want it to get to the point where it's becoming. Um, You know, unfixable. Uh, You don't want it to get to a point where it's not sustainable. And players are saying now, the game is so fast, we can barely keep pace and we're at that tipping point where it's going to become impossible to defend. Yeah. And, um, you know, okay, well, we want that. We want more tries. No, we don't. We don't want... Do you remember there was a Super League... It wasn't Super League season. It was an early NRL season. And teams were winning 48 to 36. And, you know, it was ridiculous. Um, I think it was the interchange or something. But, uh, you know, I don't want to see too much tinkering.
0: Because now, especially this game, I I think 2017-18, it got very much... Um, too robotic. It was very much completion rate oh, yeah. set and it just uh, games became a bit too monotonous. Um, now, when what you're saying, like 18 points isn't a lead anymore. No. If you have all the ball, you can swing around 18 points in 15 minutes. Um, or, or if another team, if you go, even yesterday in the Tigers game, they only go It was it 14-0, 14-6 halftime, got to take that because no. if you play well enough, you chase it down.
2: You, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, leads are very hard to defend now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there Close matches, or do teams get momentum and they, you know, the scores fourteen nil, and then yeah. halftime at sixteen fourteen. Yeah. You know, is that the sort of game? And there's want? games
0: where even this year where um, it's been 32 twelve, and you go, hang on, that was a. You what? If you watch the game, it was a close game, but it just feel you get yeah. you get there, and it's all of a sudden they've won by twenty.
1: Well, by the end of the game yesterday, I think it was 36-20, 36-20 to the yeah. Eels, yeah. which Swedish suggests was. a bit more of a dominant performance than it was. It
0: should have been. Yeah. It was 22 when uh, when with like three
2: Lots nice to go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, I hated last year's grand final as yeah. a match. Oh, oh you yeah. know, uh, I hated it because we lost. But the fact that Penrith were down 22-0 yeah. and then twenty-six, twenty-two 22-0 at halftime? Yeah, 22 26-0. Yeah. It was just rubbish. You know, we played rubbish. We deserved it. We made mistakes. The referees put their bib in. Yeah. And then... All of a sudden, we're back to 26-20. Yeah. And we're all, we almost won it in the last eight seconds or something. Yeah. That's rubbish rugby league. Yeah. I, I didn't want to win it that way. And if you look at the game in two halves... No way Melbourne should have been able to uh, lose that game. No way. Yeah. Um, they should not have been 22-0, maybe 12-0. As a Panthers yeah. supporter, you can say Melbourne were the better better team. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they handled it yeah. better. We handled it, you know, Cleary throws an intercept. We had um, uh, Crichton run an illegal line and uh, try get called back. Uh, May thought he was defending, but he lashed out with his foot and his foot hit the ball. That's a no-no. So a lot of things just went against us. Um, But... I don't like the fact that games run with momentum. The only good thing about what Valandis has done is taken the referee, he hasn't taken the bunker out of the equation, but he's taken the referee out of the equation. You know, when we had two referees, you had two people just ruining the game, Yes. Uh, penalty after penalty. Yeah. You know, Always
0: at, had different interpretation in the same game, so you'd oh, be one team... Ridiculous. ...offside with, with 10 metre lines, the other with 6. And why
2: so. are we so special that we need two referees? No, we need right. two referees. Yeah. That's what the linesmen they, they keep the, the 10 yards Um, they still get it wrong they still make mistakes but uh, I don't like the rule at the moment of the bunker overruling the try, but they don't want any howlers. So if you've got two minutes until the kicker gets back to his mark to kick the conversion and you see a little bobble or a knock-on or whatever, but as Phil Gould said the other night, you know, the bunker is is actively looking for reasons to take tries yes. off. You know, that's not what the game's about. Imagine a, imagine a grand final that, you know, someone scores a try. Yeah but see what they've done now is that the the league and uh, the, the referees are saying okay we're, we're going upstairs to look at it everyone hold their horses they're going oh look like a try bang yeah and they're still overturning it that's annoying people yeah so I want that out of the I, game. I, it, it's it's a funny thing because some it
0: felt even this weekend there's probably three occasions <laughs> where I thought something happened and they didn't check it it felt like they didn't check it and they lined up and kicked and everyone it's half the teams are waiting for almost to be overturned and it was awarded and off they went but then you don't want to get to then, but then you get to the point where they do go upstairs, and it's almost like um, it's almost like the stewards throwing in a protest. Yeah, well, isn't if you're if you're going, why are we going when you've already obviously made your decision? Like just turn around and say no. What about, no, that?
2: What about that farcical nines competition up at <laughs> up at Bathurst or wherever, where Penrith were beaten by St oh, George? Cody Ramsey. yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> in oh, the, the second row. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, sorry, I get that. I'm fine with that. Like no? overall, in that, I'm saying overall. No, that's no, I'm not. I'm not fine with it. That was a laughing. That's why there's no. No, um, no I'm saying checking that's fine. Yeah. But Uh, Yeah, Yeah, so what what the league are doing they're overcompensating for that because they they were made to look like a laughing stock or we can't overturn it, oh if I was the captain of St George I wouldn't go up to Penrith to say we forfeit, you guys go through it was a Mickey Mouse decision so what we don't want is the game being ruined by Mickey Mouse decisions but we don't want the game being ruined by late overturning for technical um, breaches or whatever Uh, if they ever bring in a um, um, you know, a 10 metre camera that can measure offside we're in a lot of trouble because yeah. there's no point having referees it'll all be decided upstairs That's right
0: um, It feels like that PVL's done a great thing with um, obviously getting back on the field in COVID and the stuff he does and a lot of the great stuff he does with racing, I don't agree with all of that um, as a punter, I think some some of the race field stuff and that in years gone by I didn't agree with but that's a different chat Um but it feels like he does roll out a lot of uh, lip service stuff. Like this HIA rule is just lip service to me. Yeah. You go, Okay, we had a game where three blokes got knocked out. We bet we'll just put a rule out. And now if you have three blokes, it's probably they've, never going to happen again.
1: They've also announced today there's more changes that they've made to it. Yeah, it's now if it's a. I haven't fully read today, so. I'll be um, so it. if a player gets injured in any way and they won't come back oh, at foul play. Yeah, foul play, and yeah. foul play. So you, you talk about rules being tinkered with, well, th- that rules has been around that, for a week and they're already
0: But that to me was just a knee jerk, it actually doesn't mean anything, it, the one time it'll happen in the next five years, they'll say hey we did this, but it's just them saying hey we've got it covered it's almost like not covering their own ass but yeah, maybe covering their own arse, it's just it's What lip happened service before to
2: me. was that uh, people used to get annoyed especially the media used to get annoyed with the board making decisions and taking a long time to make, you know, who are the ten numbskulls who came up with decision. So Volandis who is very good at I suppose reading the mood of the room Yes, he's taking it upon it himself to say look, people don't like it, I'm going to change it, you know, and people go oh, fantastic, it's a decision now he got away with it the first couple of times with the referees, Yeah, no consultation no, go back to one referee but he's got to be very careful that he doesn't make knee-jerk decisions yeah. and policy on the run. Yeah. Because people won't wear that. Yeah. Um, and a couple of the um, rules that he's made this year, uh, or someone's made, uh, the concussion rule, the death man rule... Have just sounded a bit wishy-washy. Yes. So he's got to be very careful that he doesn't um, throw away his hard-earned credibility on Mickey Mouse decisions. Yeah. That don't need to be made. It, yeah. There's
0: just been a couple of weeks where he, it feels like he, it feels like he sat and watched 360. And going, well, I better fix it. And, and, yeah. and that's it. It's, uh, <laughs> know, You're right, Paul. Kent. Yeah. But it's. I don't know. It, God forbid. Yeah. You know? uh, um. Your own. You so say your own work. Let's let's uh, bring it back to you a little bit. Um, you have. We talked about you starting out last time, I guess, um, from school teaching towards writing. Um, just give a quick price, uh, proxy of, yeah, your, your foot your footsteps into authorship and, um, yeah, the, the books you've ghosted, the books you've written, the books you've enjoyed the most, I guess. Well,
2: what That's happened? a lot of questions, sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Look, what happened was uh, even when I was in high school and when I was in college, oh, I wanted to write, you know, I wanted to... Do, But, you know, what do you write about? You know, the the hardest thing was finding something to write about. And because I had read so much about rugby league, I had watched so much about rugby league, and I'm by no means a rugby league expert, and I don't like the term rugby league historian. You know, anyone with a a library card is an historian. Yeah. Um, At least I knew and I could put into words what I felt about certain issues. and. One of the things, you know, I read or I might have seen in the movie, I don't know, you know. If you want to start writing, write what you know. Don't, don't start writing yeah. about stuff you don't know. Yeah. Because it'll, it'll be poked at. So... And the great thing about rugby league writing uh, was that there is a specific format. Uh, Ollie, you'd know this as being a student of, uh, of journalism.
1: Uh, Daggy also writes f- yeah. for racing. We've got to give that a shout out too. Yeah,
0: so.
2: so uh, Pro Group racing. You'll yeah. yeah. give him a plug. Yeah. yeah. So when you write about you know you know newspapers in the old days of of newspapers there is a journalistic style of writing and with rugby league you have a vernacular you have a format you have and how do you say stuff uh, originally original and how do you still keep it within a format that people can read so I found the discipline of that very very good so I started writing uh, little um, statistical things um, and I got those published and then I started writing Match reports, and I sort of got those republished, and then um, I I was teaching at the time, and I decided, look, I really want to have a go at this uh, this writing a book about rugby league, and and in those days in the 80s there was no there were no books on rugby league you couldn't you couldn't find a a history book probably probably the one uh, you know the best history book ever written about rugby league was was published in 1988. That was Gary Lester's History of Australian Rugby yeah, League. I think I've got that in Yeah, um, nice. Big one. You big, know, yeah. I, I know guys who, who waited in line, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning to get that book. So I was very lucky to get published uh, when rugby league literature was yep.
1: in its infancy. So So you sort of saw that gap in the market and you thought, right, there's not too much going on here. Maybe maybe I can jump in and
2: make a bit of a name for myself. being a nobody who had nothing published, yes, I could jump yeah. in, um, and it was nothing. we um, sorry was... to cut in.
0: Were, we're sporting biographies and autobiographies a big thing in the eighties no. because I know yeah, growing up as a no. sporting teenager, you get one for Christmas every year, get yeah, whoever yeah. it might be. And a cricket of, it was, uh, but it doesn't feel like yeah. Before that, there was there's not great books sitting around about um, no. anyone before the eighties uh, really. No.
2: Steve Mortimer bought out a book called Top Dog, his mm. biography. That was about 84. Uh, Sturlow jumped the gun. Yeah. Uh, that might have been 80... 85? Oh, very early. Yeah. 84, 85? Yeah. Um, and the third one was Mal Meninga. Mal Meninga okay. had, had two biographies. Yeah, in the 80s. And... Um, I had spent a couple of months writing a history of the grand final Uh and I was working for a publisher Uh, I was teaching but I was also working for a publisher and computers were just coming in yeah so the the first edition the first draft I had hand typed handwritten first draft second edition second draft sorry Typed an old typewriter. I had the third edition was on computer, so much easier to edit. Yeah. And once I'd put it on computer, um, I was able to get it published. And the publisher just asked me, you know, what else do you want to do? Yeah. Could, could you do a, a biography? And I went, yeah, yeah, I think so. Who would you like to do it? one? And only really, there were only really two players in 1990, 91 that I thought were standouts. One was Des Hasler uh-huh. because Des was a Penrith boy. Uh, Roy Simmons was the other one. Roy Roy Simmons. Royce was a neighbour of mine and I I would have loved to have done his book then. But he was playing reserve grade, I think, at the time. So he he was... And he was coming to the end of his career. Probably would have been... If I had any vision, grabbing Royce would have been best. But in the end, I I just pulled out a name. I said, oh, Terry Lamb. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, Terry Lamb, you know. So I just uh, rang him up. Uh, He was in the phone book. And I had no manager. He had no manager. And I just said, look... Uh, publisher has expressed interest about doing your biography. And this is a guy who never finished school, never finished high school. Yeah. And he said, Oh, come around and have a beer and we'll talk about it. And I was I was about twenty seven. Uh, yeah, twenty seven. Twenty eight. And um we had a beer and he goes yeah okay let's take a pump that's how easy it was yeah. Yeah. whereas now and this happened to me chasing uh, Jonathan Thurston's uh, biography four years of negotiation with managers yeah. publishers the media Thurston Thurston's family Thurston's wife not Thurston himself yeah all these other people and ended up going uh, to another person, which was fine. So it was much easier in those days and much more innocent. So through no... Just happened to be in the right place at the right time, when Rugby League Publications was just taking off that whole literature form, um, I was getting published. And I had enough knowledge of the game and enough ability... You know, we're not talking Tolstoy here, we're yeah. talking Rugby League. Yeah. yeah. You know, to, to, to write fifty thousand words about certain things. Still a lot of words. Um, to get published. So I was, I was just very lucky. Yeah. But I worked at it, like you know, I, I gave up my teaching career for a year. You know, I sacrificed a lot, you know, I gave up a, a, a good career. Mm. I chased I worked for a publisher who didn't pay his bills, didn't pay me for six months. I had a wife and a family and mm. a mortgage and everything. Then I went back to school, got a job, got a promotion, kept on writing on weekends, and persevered with another three years before I got published. So certainly wasn't any overnight success, or you know, it's not a case of oh, I think I'll you know get up and write a book. Yeah, you know, it takes it took years. Whereas now it's streamlined down to a, a good six months, you know, three three to six months to get a book published and then another three months for it to come out. But it was exciting times, very naive times. Uh, didn't make a lot, lot of money out of it, but I got published. Yep. And once you get published, it's like a calling card. You know, I've done this book. Do you want to do one? And then I was able to do other books. And I ended up doing Royce's wasn't his biography, but it was his reminiscences of uh, growing up in the country, which was a lot of fun. Did Matty Rogers's, Luke Lewis, Cliffy Lyons, and, uh, yeah, enjoyed it. Oh, could you see...
0: Oh, I was going to say, if, if you were, say, Ollie's age, in, in this sort of day and age, you'd be sitting out in the same path as him, just doing a Facebook page and trying yeah. to get it just starting that way? Uh, different,
1: different world now. Yeah. yeah, well, I just wanted to say... Um, Probably about two months ago now, I had the pleasure of interviewing Tony Adams, otherwise known as The Mole. And I asked him, you know, as an aspiring journalist myself, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to someone coming through the ranks who does want to be maybe a Tony Adams one day? And he sort of echoed your sentiment. He said the biggest thing is to get published somehow, someway. you just got to get pub- published, which thankfully I have been through my work with everything Online, rugby yeah. league. Yeah, look, I just wanted to... I guess give my thoughts on how. how what, what it takes to, I guess, write about rugby league, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it because I get. 13 year old kids for example starting up rugby league pages messaging me saying you know why you know I write a lot of stuff why isn't it getting published why uh, why aren't I as popular and I guess it's sort of a why have you been able to get this job and you know have a relatively successful page and I haven't and the thing I've always taken is I don't necessarily know any more about rugby league than your average bloke down the pub I'm not trying to sound egotistical here, but the big thing is that education level and just in general, that those writing skills and you know that ability to articulate a piece of work. <laughs> A 13-year-old's obviously not finished their education. They don't know as much as they need to, so their work's obviously not going to come out as good. What I want to ask you is, I guess the biggest part about being an author, being a writer in Rugby League is not about it's not knowing about Rugby League. It's that knowledge of writing. Is that the big thing? Because to me it is, that, that knowledge of writing, how to put a piece of work together.
2: Look, I think what makes a good writer is a good reader. I think you've got to, you've got to read. Like, I read everything. You know, I, I I still I, – I, I would read five books, you know, on the go a week. Yeah. No problems. Biographies, histories. And, you know, you might read a whole book and you might just see one little phrase or one word or go, oh, wow. Or, or you can say, well, see how he's written that. Gee, that's – Salient.
1: That's Dag's no favourite word No, I recently. used to answer it. Salient. salient. No, I'll like Every week
0: I seem to come up with a word that the Rugby League podcast would... Yeah, I, I don't listen, well, to put it in perspective, I don't listen, obviously there's 400,000 rugby league podcasts and I can't listen to the ones that, yeah, we're back here to talk about it, I just don't listen to it, I just don't listen no. to it, no. whereas at least if I can present something I would want to listen to, yeah. at least so I've had 17 beers and it probably sounds a bit slurry, but before that, yeah, yeah but it's a level of education, it's, it, to your point, it's the same thing to me, Well, that's I, wouldn't turn on the radio, they, I wouldn't turn on the radio to listen to them, so I'm not going to get away way to devote yeah. an hour or three hours in our case to, to yeah. listen to some other people talk about it when I yeah
1: well this is why I jumped on with you guys so early when you guys started the pod but going off in our own thing now yeah, but no, right. it's, it's because now. within five minutes and I noticed with podcasts too within a five minute period you can instantly tell when someone knows what they're talking about yeah. and someone has some actual knowledge and has taken the time to research and sort of articulates themselves in a certain way because yeah there are so many podcasts and pages out there of people who just think well I'm a rugby league fan I watch a bit of footy I can do this and be Successful, but
2: yeah. They've done a little bit of research on this. They say to be an expert in any field, you must spend 10,000 hours. You know, 10,000 hours now, it's 50 weeks in a year. How many how many hours a week, you know, to, to get um, over many years? And I think, well, looking back, okay, Well, how did I start writing about Rugby League? Well, I watched a lot of Rugby League. Um, I uh, read a lot of, uh, you know, I read Rugby League Week every week. Yeah. You know, I, I, I read... Any, any books that came out I read the paper every day I was a huge devourer of the newspaper as a kid I used to read it from cover to cover yeah. um, you know my secret job was you know, I wanted to be a journalist and um I read everything, you know. Anything that was written about Roby League, I, I, you know, you just zero in on. So by the time you get to about 18 and and you want – and if kids are trying to publish um, uh, websites and web pages, then, then, you know, all power to them. But they're going to lack the finesse and, and yes. whatever, uh, unless they're a progeny. Um, uh, but the important thing is, is that, you know, when you're ready to start writing – the it'll come naturally like when you force something you know you know it's forced and the other thing about Rugby League is that it's a working man's game. You can't be pretentious about it. Uh, there are plenty of authors who have written books, and I won't name them. You, you can read them, who try and intellectualise Rugby League, and it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, you're talking about a physical uh, man-on-man game of strategy, cunning, and, and sometimes brute force. You're not talking about Zen Buddhism. You're not you're not you're not talking about something ethereal that you can't pluck out. I, of I the don't air. think,
0: yeah, and especially you can't put it on this level. And the blokes actually doing it yeah. aren't on that level. They just turn out there and they know to keep their shape and do what they do. And,
2: yeah. and what you can do as a writer, people who want to write, how does it, how do I say something original? Mm. Well, you can draw analogies, similes. You can bring in pop culture references. Yeah. Uh, that annoys the daylights out of me. <laughs> and a guy that you mentioned, Paul Kent, is who I don't want to say he's a better writer than I am, but he's um, he writes for a living. Yeah. Uh, so do I. But he he writes for a living uh, in a daily rag. Um, you can't be so pop cultural ish that you know it, it's meaningless what you're writing about, and. You know, sometimes somebody will pull out a word or pull out a uh, a simile or an analogy or whatever, and you just wince and go, "Oh my God, what are they trying to do?" Yeah. You know, I'm a big believer in, especially in writing and in journalism. I'm a big believer in economy of words. Mm. Don't use 20 words when you can use five.
0: And I think I think where some people. Where it's hard is, say, Ollie writing for example. He has to hit 2,000 words yeah. to get paid. Yeah, uh, so eight cents a word. Where he gets paid, so he knows he has to hit 2,000 or a thousand words. So you, you almost get to the stage you're like okay I've got to find 500 words here what am I going to do and that's I think and that then bleeds into the rest yeah. of their
2: work yeah,
0: yeah. Um, sorry to, yeah,
2: to well you will look you know you can write filler if you want but you're going to get caught out yes. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so how do you make and also without putting yourself in the story which is another no-no that I, I, I hate um, you know so referring to I yeah I well, believe mm, mm, etc yeah. or, or, or you know I was talking to so and so and he said this and blah 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 yeah. you know Dislike journalists who do that. Yeah. Um, even as a writer who's written books, you know, I've, I've got very strong editors that say do not put yourself in the story. Yeah. Um, maybe in the introduction you might say how you came to the story. Was that – does that become harder in the true crime yeah. stuff? Because, oh, yeah, for sure, you, because it's your
0: opinion essentially. So you, It's my opinion, but yeah. I, I'm not part of the story. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the whole but you, story. you can't – yeah. this is where I looked at – this is yeah, at, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: But the, the thing is, is that, um, you know, to write with authority, you've got to know your subject and you've – it's almost you've got to con yourself that, that I can do this that there's an audience for this you know anyone who spends a weekend in their bedroom writing an essay you know, or a story or or, or an article, you know. The only thing that could keep you going, or keep you from, you know, hitting the pub, or hitting the, hitting the TV, or hitting the, the, the Game Boy, is the fact that somebody's going to read this. Somebody, somebody yeah. is interested in this, yeah. and that's that's what drives. You know, it's ego. It drives all writers. I want people to read this. I'm going to say something fresh, original, and insightful in what I'm talking about. Now, I try and do that with rugby league. Um, you try and you know draw links you try and talk about the 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 ribbon of history, you try and talk about what we learned about this, what this success or failure means so as long as you can talk about feelings and you can you can sort of dive down a little bit and every now and then say things originally you know, you'll always have an audience um, and it's not because you're a better writer than anyone else but you know, it, it, it is, it's a real craft it's an art, you know putting the words in uh, a certain order so that they make, you know, a certain sense and give a certain ambience uh, to a story is, is good fun. Yeah. And good writers do it deliberately. Yeah. You know, I'm going to plant a little seed here. I'm going to write this sentence and I'm going to put it in there and see if anyone bites. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the great thing. Great fun about yeah. riding, I find.
0: Yeah. Well, just even from my point of view, one of the articles I was most sacked with was about the Melbourne Cup and it just came from a Dean Lester quote about driving at Neil's ride. Where he, in last year's Melbourne Cup where he led the whole way yeah. and he just went, <laughs> I didn't back it either. But basically, Dean Lester was almost in tears saying, I told him to be brave and he was braver than I could ever be. And just that, the way he said it and the way that, I essentially based the whole idea around that quote because it was just such a tremendous quote to me in the moment and that held up and I think finally You want people stuff, to see it. Yeah, and I just thought, look, if, I, if you're not one of the people listening on RSN Melbourne's second digital channel, you'd never heard it. Yeah. But it just happened I was and I thought, I'll use that, but yeah.
2: Good writing is personal, but it's not personal to the writer. It can can be. And it's not personal to the subject. It's personal to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can tap into... Like uh, mate and I, when we started off writing, we'd, we'd be writing stuff, and and uh, Greg Anderson uh, and I wrote uh, a book on North Sydney of all people, and we used to joke, oh, when they read this, I'll be crying, you know. Yeah. So you, you're deliberately yeah. Yeah. tugging, yeah, at, at people's hearts heartstrings, you know, without being soppy about it. Yes. Um, but that's what you got to do. Um, but you know, getting back to Ollie's point about starting out, there are so much more opportunities, and yet there are. Less opportunities yeah. for getting published now. Well, it's you know? like the the traditional journalism age. A lot
1: of people yeah. say that journalism is a dying profession. It's not necessarily a dying profes- profession. It's a changing profession. You know, newspapers aren't going to be around for that much longer. It's all going to be online, and there are so many opportunities to get published online. Like I know so many websites where they will accept just your average person submitting an article, and they may upload it. You know, it, it's that easy today. So. There are many opportunities, I guess, just not in the traditional sense. The,
2: the issue is is that anyone can do a, a web page, anyone can do a blog, anyone can yep. do whatever. Mm. Uh, and, and in my days, a lot of people could get published. But after getting published a couple of times, you raise the bar a little bit and say, well... You've got to change it up. How, how can I write something of quality yeah. that yep. will last? Yep, um, and that's what uh, bloggers and uh, web page designers, and, you know, uh, have to have to say. Well okay oh, I'm published now but how do I get up to that next level?
1: Yeah well, I've seen in terms of, page, I know it's not the exact same but in terms of rugby league pages and lots of kids like to start them up these days and they, yeah. they come and go and there's just the one thing you need to be committed to it, you need to be all in The one you would speak about originality the one thing that I say to people who ask me how, how do I start out a page is an original name, an original logo there are so many pages I personally see who have the NRL logo as their as their logo and a name such as nrL news nrL dot news or something like you 've got to find something that stands out i was pers- i was lucky lucky enough um, it, it was a segment of a a football soccer youtuber that I watched, and it was called in my opinion that that 's not his page and it that was his this particular segment this series he was doing I was like oh okay rugby league in my opinion and it I was lucky enough to get that and now I have seen a few pages floating around it's called rugby league opinion or something Mm -hmm. like that and I see plenty of cop pages called rugby league something column or something roast and that because of pages like Clarky's column and the NRL roast but those pages won't get the time of day because they're they're so such a comparison can be easily made with those bigger pages it's like well you're just trying to be like them you have to find a way to be original whilst not being original because you are in that rugby league industry and trying to break into that but you have to be your own entity I guess
2: they're generic yeah. yeah
1: um just well, how uh,
0: how does the process? Just quickly back to so example, um, you don't having a beer with Terry Lamb. The next step is then, do you then spend two hours a week with him for three months? Do you? Well, when you're is it all over the, the phone. Yeah, is
2: it, when you're working with another person, or in the old days when I first started, out, I like to be with the person because yeah, you, know, yeah. you can see their look on their face yeah. whether they're pissed off or not, or you know, cranky, tired, whatever, laughing. You know, over the phone. I have have done a few interviews over the phone, but they're just, you know, through necessity. Um, and I just had a recorder and uh, just voice record in the old days the old days I used to have you know, mini cassette tapes yeah. you know those and then you'd go home and you'd spend hours transcribing them verbatim yeah. you know and then you'd have to like a jigsaw puzzle cut it all up into bits and take the best bits out and you know uh, the worst part would be if somebody went off on a tangent and you had to transcribe it all up and you well there's 5,000 words I'll never use yeah, yeah. so you you, you you learn as you went to edit you know oh he's talking crap here you know and so i'm just yeah. gonna you know shorten this to here yeah. you know so but you know th- there was no getting away with just a hard slog um the, the big decision you had to make was do I write it in his voice or my voice and yeah. it's usually about the quality of the um, the quality of the interviewer. now Terry Lamb was a lovely guy but he's actually very shy and um, uh, he'd, he'd agree even though he's a millionaire now he wasn't highly educated yeah. so writing in his own voice I would have been putting a lot of words in his mouth Yeah. yeah even even to structure a sentence Yeah. so I thought no I, I'm just getting enough of some good quotes here so I wrote it in my my voice and put his words in. Uh, same with Cliff Lyons. You know, Ian Heads pulled me aside one day at a function and said, "Good would like getting 50,000 words out of Cliff Lyons because, you know, it's yep, nut, nah, yep, nah. Yeah. And he was absolutely correct. So I wrote that in my voice. Uh, but other people who talked, like Manny Rogers loved to talk, Roy Simmons. Roy Simmons was great because not only did he love to talk, he had a very uh, particular way of, of talking, like yeah. a real country yes. style of talking. And so one of the things you're able to develop with your ear and your, 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 uh, your writing style is how to keep the quirkiness of their of their their syntax so you,
1: you bleed it in and I guess yeah. it comes for the
2: reader that shines through yeah, yeah. so uh, I wrote it in his voice said so there's going to be in the first person so you know I I, I. so you are the, so you're going to be there's a responsibility as a writer not to put words in his mouth that he doesn't understand yeah. that he would never say and uh, he would never uh, utter or stuff that you wanted to put in there Um uh there they were the, the two big decisions and then when you're going to a history book like a story of the grand finals or, or whatever then you know you could write in your own authoritative voice yeah, yeah. and bring in quotes and i would ring up guys over the phone you know i ring up a lot of old guys i i, I ring up uh, norm proven i ring arthur summons i ring johnny Sattler. I found them in the phone book just ring them up yeah. and uh, you know i had no voice recorder that could attach to the phone so i'm writing verbatim quickly yeah. as i can uh, then when when you got clever and you, you had the right uh, you know i had a two phone system and i had one on speakerphone and i'd have the recorder yeah and and uh, it took me, took, took me years to, to get an interview with Bob Fulton, yep. and um, uh, the recorder didn't work. <laughs> oh. So I had to. I only got about a third of the quotes that he gave me, and uh, from my handwritten notes. Yeah. Um, so that was really disappointing. But there are all the things that that happened in the old days when you're writing. Yeah. But you did it because you loved it. And you did it because, you know, um, you hoped that there was a market for it. Somebody was going to read it, and it was good fun. It was still, it was still a very new industry. Yeah. You know? I'm writing. Yeah. I'm writing rugby league books.
0: You know. Yeah, so, yeah, essentially, I guess you're blazing your own trail there, really, at the time.
2: Yeah, and there were, there were, Ian Heads was getting published, um, uh, Mike Coleman, uh, Gary Lester. <clears throat> so you're in pretty good company. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, and a couple of other guys. Um, you know, a couple of those books, you look back on the time and you go, okay, you know, what did they write after this? So... Some of them were one-hit wonders, some of them had long careers, uh, so it was, for me it was always about momentum, you know what was going to be the next book, Yeah. so you can always use that as a, as a parlay into another yeah. book, into another title. Uh,
0: well, you've given us the best part of an hour and a half, a couple more things I want to touch on, Sure. anything else?
1: I, I just wanted to maybe bring up sure, yeah. what you're doing today uh, yeah. semi-retired, but you are working with the likes of uh, Anthony Loxley, someone who we're good friends with, we yeah. interviewed before at the same event where we interviewed you, um, the book launch of League on Sunday, Work on Monday. I believe you're working on another book with Blocks. Is that what you're looking to do now for the foreseeable future, helping out authors coming through, or is there going to come a time where, yet? Yeah,
2: Nixon? Well, look, uh, I've known Tony for a number of years. I published him when I was a publisher working in Sydney, and uh, he... Is one of the few people who is taking a punt on big, colour, heavy, yeah. heavy rugby league books, which yeah. I love, and I love doing the photo research and I love um, talking about an era that I grew up in and you know. Yeah, and I,
0: I, gave, I gave that actually the work on Monday, I work on Sunday book I gave to my old man for Christmas. He loved yeah. it, loved it.
2: Just, yeah, because it's know, our demographic. Yeah, you know and. And Tony has a number of projects that he wants to do, and I will pick and choose which ones I come on board and yep. say, look, I can add something to that, yeah. or, no, mate, that's out of my comfort range, whatever. But I'm, I'm still working um, for other publishers, so I've just finished a book on Racehorse. Horse Racing Immortals, uh, Farlap, winks. Um, you know, the top 20... Is that 20th... with yourself or through...? No, j- just through... Uh, no, I'm not publishing it myself.
0: Then. Oh, like right uh, uh, written, written yeah. yourself or with anyone else?
2: No, or? I've written it uh, okay. with myself. Okay. And part of the fun was uh, doing the photo research, which yeah. I, 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 I um, had a lot of uh, enjoyment doing, and it's been published by a good publisher, and it'll be out in October in time for the oh, Melbourne right Cup. Cool. And I think it'll be a really nice little book. But,
0: again, that's a... Apart from, I guess, your... I just had a blank bloke who wrote Bart's autobiography. He's dead now. Uh, It's not a big market anymore. No, no. no. Well, a lot of... Sorry, there's not a lot of authors anymore. I know Jessica always wrote a real good one about Peter Pan and about someone else. Yeah, Uh, that's a pretty good book. Uh, uh, Yeah.
2: The the problem with horse racing is that publishers have always had uh, a bias against publishing. Yeah. Because they say, well, you know, punters would rather have a punt than buy the book. Yeah. But there are horse lovers and history lovers who would love a good book on horse racing. Yeah. So I've been working for about five or six years on... a book on the Melbourne Cup, every Melbourne Cup, all the stats. Uh, I've been collecting photos, and I really hope to bring that out in the next five years. But there are a number of projects I'm working on. There's that one, there's that. Not too much rugby league, uh, mainly niche rugby league. Uh, Ian Collis, another guy that I've, I've yeah. published with. Ian, uh, Ian, and I have a, a project that we're working on in the about rugby league in the 1970s. We'd like to bring out maybe retrospective yearbooks. You know, like what was 1985, like in Rugby League. Yeah. Um, and they're for the collector. You know, they're not yeah. for, you know, uh, maybe young people, people yeah. like yourselves who who love the history of it, the game.
0: Is that a, a matter of going and looking at... Um Going into library archives, how, how would you go about Well,
2: that? Well, library archives at, and also um, Big League that was published that yeah, year. Yeah. A lot of stuff's on video, YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you get in contact with a few of the old players. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. you know, and I think it would be, as an older person looking back, I think it would be a lot of fun to do that. Um, and I think uh, uh, an increasing demographic, if not young guys like yourself who are interested in history of the game, but guys like uh, my generation who grew up through it, you know, to sit through a 400-page book that has everything in it about the 70s I think it'd be quite exciting um, but it's a niche it's you know it's not gonna it's not Harry Potter it's yeah. not gonna sell millions yeah. Yeah. but I'm semi-retired now so I can pick my projects and say well I'm gonna spend three months on that or six months on yeah. that or I'm gonna spend four years on this one yeah and there's a couple of projects that I am doing that are long-term long-term say three four year projects um, and you know I'm happy to do that at my age i uh, will ask about you love a racing uh,
0: mm. you, every Saturday, you, you're doing the form or having a bet. Uh, how did it all start off, and yeah, how much did you enjoy it?
2: No, oh, I love love horse racing. I love the history, just like rugby league. I love the history of it. Um, I love the horse. I, I've had favourite horses over yeah. the years.
0: Um, who are you, who are a couple of your favourites from it? From
2: um, probably Manicado is, yeah. is my favourite horse. Uh, uh, not because I won a lot of money on him, uh, because he was always so short. Yeah, but just his heart and you know the way that he used to lead all the way um so i started off horse racing uh, very late uh, I was probably 17 18 uh, before i went into horse racing yeah. um my grandfather used to listen to the races on a, a saturday afternoon um Ollie's uh, dad, uh, Paddy Kilner, will remember Bill Keach, um, who uh, uh, ran the corner s- uh, store in Penrith where we grew up. Paddy lived next door. I was um, uh, I used to stay up there on a Saturday afternoon and watch uh, wrestling and yeah. and uh, watch the football on TV. And then who was it?
1: your favourite wrestler. I know Daggy's a
2: bit of a sufferer. a Ar- Rion was my favourite. Yeah. Um, about uh, Nature Boy. Uh, probably after my time, uh, I go right back to Killer Carl Cox yeah. uh, days. Uh,
0: yeah, so Vinnie tells the stories about the old when well, it used to be filmed in Melbourne. Be yeah, for, yeah, for probably oh, five no. years, it was the biggest promotion in Australia in there, the world.
1: Yeah, Australia. there was a um, yeah. Yeah. An, an old rugby well. league yeah. com-
2: commentator I who
1: commentated to, yeah. on it, or an AF- AFL yeah. commentator, yeah. 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 Michael
2: Clearing. Yeah. yeah, so I I fell in love with horse racing, and I you know I'd have uh, you know a dollar on something, yeah. you know, which was a lot of money in those days, especially when you didn't have a job. Yeah. Melbourne yeah. Cup mainly, uh, rather than going to a, a sweep, I'd have a bet on a horse. Yeah, so I started punting on horses, which I still love doing. Uh, but uh, you've got to love the horse and you've got to, you know, you've got to study the form, study the horse. Can the horse win? What are his or her a- attributes? What does the jockey bring? What does the weight bring? All that sort of stuff. But it's a, it's a great industry, great. There's probably too much racing at the moment. I've lost a little bit of passion for it. But the great horses, uh, Farlap, Tulloch, Kingston Town, Manicado, Super you know, those horses, I loved going back and telling their story. Yeah. You know, what was the first race they won? Did they know it was going to be a champion? <laughs> And writing about a horse, which is not a football player, what was the horse's champion qualities? Could the horse win, uh, like, might and power from the front? Yeah. Could they come from behind? Did they have a withering burst? Did they work well for certain jockeys, um, certain conditions? Yeah, fascinating.
0: I think you uh, always have that extra nostalgia for the early horses. You're getting a yeah. your game. Same as me. I love So You Think. This is when I started betting. Oh, yeah. And So You Think, more joyous were sort of the two that I first fell in love with. And I think now, when you bet every <laughs> Saturday, you struggle to fall. In love with any of them anymore, but the too that, many. yeah, and uh, uh happy clap. did Pat <coughs> Webster excuse me, we're just a happy clappers and hey lists of the world. You sort of mm. have a soft spot for, but uh, and you did you you were fortunate enough to write Pat Webster's story, uh,
2: yeah, yeah, Pat Webster, just a lovely guy. Um, I, look, I was working for the publisher, and, and it came up in research that a good sporting biography, racing biography, would be on the cards, uh, because you got the combination of uh, trainer and horse, so. We bandied around a few names
0: and just yeah uh, microphone
2: up yeah, sorry that's uh, we we bandied a few names around and, and Pat Webster was doing not only uh, he, he had three bows in his uh, in his arsenal uh, first of all he was a former jockey he was the trainer of Happy Clapper but he was working with young jockeys and um, and stable people who were battling drugs so that that three combination so I went and talked to him about it and I wasn't going to ride it I was going to get someone else to ride it. And we had such a great time talking about horses because my knowledge of horses was great and talked about all these old horses and that. And he said, okay, well, it's a done deal. We'll do We'll do the book. He goes, you'll do it. And I said, no, no, I'll find you a writer. He goes, no, 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 you'll do it. All right? Well, I, I haven't got time to do it because I was a publisher at that time. And he goes, oh, well, if you can't do it, I'm not going to do it. And I said, look, just let's, let's keep it on the boil for six months. So within six months, I, I, I finished my job as a publisher and uh it was the first job that I did a, as a as a semi retired rider, yeah was to go back up and say Pat, you know I'd really like to do this book with you so that came out it was a great uh, a lot of fun it was a good story i think um I think uh, racing people would would love it you know does it cross over into other areas, probably not not enough but, mm. you know you you do your best and and uh I certainly enjoyed it I still speak to Pat you know every week every second week thank you. Man. So, uh, yeah, you know, no opportunity is a lost opportunity you yeah. know, if you get to work with other people. Oh,
0: yeah. uh, and just uh, last year on the racing, you approached the form. Do you have any anything you look out
2: for or you...? Um, No, not really. Um, Probably stupidly, I get favourite horses and I I back them. It doesn't matter if they they can't win. Um, I own a couple of horses uh, and a couple of um, small shares in horses. We've got a a horse racing tomorrow at Canterbury, uh, which we gave to my dad for his 80th birthday. Oh, nice. Who's that? Um, A horse called Savory. He's a yep. Savabile horse. Bjorn? Uh, Bjorn Baker. Yep. Uh, he won two starts ago, yep. got bogged down on a heavy track last start. Will be hard to beat tomorrow, yep. but it's just great fun. It's great fun to enhance your your, your love of racing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a very small share. My exposure is very, very small. My bills yep. are very small. Yep. Uh, but we maximise our enjoyment, especially for Dad, who's 86, and gets a real kick out of uh, yep. seeing his horse go around. That's unreal. Yeah, my
0: old man's just had a, I've had a couple of small shares with uh, Australian thoroughbreds over the years but they they were just um three odd fillies that never really went anywhere and then um it's a lottery and uh yeah Vince has got a couple with Greg Hickman but uh yeah fantastic sport I do love it um I, I love the coverage of it when it's done properly so yeah um applaud you for that um we'll wrap up quickly with the obligatory questions back to footy who's your favorite players best players you saw and maybe best players to deal with you can even throw oh, that you've sure. enjoyed the most working with I suppose
2: um, well the best player I ever saw and you you got you know I did see I did see, um, I did see uh, Bob Fulton play and I did see Graham Langlands play uh, I didn't see Reg Gasney. Reg Gazney retired in sixty seven and I started watching in sixty eight they were all good players but probably because I saw him play more than anyone else. Greg Alexander is my favourite player. And when you think of... Uh, His speed, his goal kicking, his ability to score a try back up over the field, chip kick, recoveries kick, kick for other people. Um, Just watch him in the grand final, you know, in 91, uh, how he has that whole second half on a string, just runs the whole game. Uh, Yeah, I have no, I I don't care if I'm biased, but I would say he's the best player I've seen. Have you uh, dealt with Brandy much in terms of maybe getting quotes and stuff? No, I've met him twice. Uh, uh, We had a mutual friend and I met him at a birthday party. Had okay. a very quick chat with him. He was very generous, and uh, said he knew of a couple of my books, uh, but I've never had to interview him um, uh, or, or ask his quotes on anything. Um, so I haven't, haven't nothing it, work related. I've had nothing to uh, to bother. And then I met him one day at Fox Sports. Had a quick hello to okay. him. Uh, look. <clears throat> because I'm older than brandy and you know I was I was in my 20s when he was 19 uh you don't look up to those players, mm. and nor do you, you fanboy them. Yeah. But you know, you sort of one of the things, like even some of the famous people that I, I've met in other industries, you treat them as normal people. You, you ever be been starstruck? Um, no, not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you've done Barns.
0: You've chatted to Barnesy, You've.
1: Oh no, yeah, Barnesy. Yeah. Barnsie. Have, have you ever come? What's the closest? I guess you've come <laughs> to
2: being starstruck then? <laughs> uh, probably. Sir Tim Rice, who wrote oh. um, Evita and The Phantom of the Opera and yeah. um, worked with Elton John on an Oscar. I had lunch with him once in Sydney, and uh, he was just a charming Englishman, you know, and I got his email uh, through a contact. Uh, it was almost, you know, we were drunk in a pub in England one night, and I said to, to her, she was a, an agent, I said, who do you know? Drop me a name. Yeah, And she said, oh, I'm very good friends with Sir Tim Rice. I said, I'd love to talk to Sir Tim. I'd love to have lunch with him. So... Yeah, you know, give me give me his email she goes no no I can't do that that's a you know yeah. I said no. so by the end of the night after you know about 100 <laughs> drinks she gave me an email but she said you know if you do a book with him you've got to cut me in and I said that's fine I'll do that yep. so I just dropped him an email saying well, I'm a big fan if you're ever in Australia let's have lunch anyway and because he's a cricket nut three months later he rang my office oh, I was Alan Whitaker there um, I'd like to We let him know that uh, Sir Tim Rice, I'd love to go out for lunch. <laughs> Where'd you take him? I took him to Woolloomooloo Wharf, yep. where, where John Laws eats, um, and we had at John Laws' table. I asked for John Laws' table, and we sat there, we had a great afternoon. And so I was a bit bit fanboy that day, Yeah. Yep. but very generously, um, he said, look, uh, uh, I don't know too many people in Australia, uh, my partner, he didn't have a wife at the time, he said my partner and I are, are hosting. a a New Year's Eve party would you and your wife like to come so we went along there's nobody really famous there Mark Nichols the the English cricket guy he was there and a few other people were there but it was just pleasant just my wife was a huge fan and then when we were in England uh, about six months later um, he invited us to morning tea Wow. So probably through his generosity, I was a fanboy. Yeah. Um, we never did publish anything, and we exchanged emails over the years, but uh, we've, we've sort of dropped off each other. But you have to realise when you're dealing with famous people, they're famous, you're not. Yeah. So at what line are you bothering them? That's yeah. all right. And but- what and what can you offer? Mm-hmm. There's a disparity between fame. So yeah. I have no fame, so... Really? Can I have a relationship? I have this uh, philosophy after meeting a lot of famous people through my career is that, yes, you can be pleasant and you can work on a project, but there's no rule of quality because you don't have any yeah. exchange of fame.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fame tends to either multiply or...
2: Yeah, and that's why, you know, Matt yeah. Damon's best friends with Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Because, you know, their parody is fam- yeah. fantastic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Can I be friends with Chris Hemsworth? No. Yeah. Because I don't have anything in yeah, common with him. That's I'm, right. not, I'm not in that industry. Yeah. Do I want to be? Yeah. No. Yeah. And probably all the guys, a couple of guys I palled around with for three or four months while we were doing their books. One was Glenn Shirek from Little River Band, mm-hmm. who was just the loveliest guy, just the loveliest guy. Yeah. But you're not lifelong buddies. Yeah. You know? you're, you're, you're friends during that time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you've, and being older, um, you know that. I suppose if I was a young, you know, starry-eyed kid, then I might... You know, tend to be, and, and this is your uh, issue, Ollie. Is that a lot of the people that you write about are older than you?
0: Yeah, well, mm. that, that's one. It's thing a funny thing because now you're at the other side. Like I sit and talk about a Penrith team that they're all they're all 20 years old. For me, it's like yeah, yeah. yeah. If you meet him, he's like oh, it's a nice 20 yeah. year old kid. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> whereas when you're in high school looking up, you're like, oh, yeah. wow, it's
1: Nathan Cleary. Yeah. Wow. Well, the thing I found. Uh, whether I'm interviewing players for an article for Everything Rugby League or I've I've got them on my podcast and that. The main thing I try to find out straight away is how I guess they perceive themselves and how I should be treating them. With yeah. some players it's as simple as straight down to business, okay can I get you on for a podcast here and, and that's all the chat and we do the podcast, that's it. There are a couple of players who I've interviewed for ARL over a year ago who still get in contact with me or I get, and it, it's yeah. not close or anything like no. you don't message often but there is that that slight casual thing and I guess that's just to do with personalities. Yeah. Um, I find yeah. we've players over in England they're a lot more laxadaisical, as you could expect whereas in the NRL it, it, it's more business which you, you understand so I do get that in the sense that you, you got to kind of work people out you, you don't want to overstep that boundary um, of you know trying to be too chummy because they are more famous than you but you, you, you then again you don't want to go too far the other way where you're treating them as a celebrity and absolutely you, you got to find and, and it it's different from person to person. you
2: just got to find that balance. I think if you talk to, a, you know, as real people and you're a real person and you ask interesting questions, yep. um, that's fine. But, you know, you will get players who, you know, have big heads and uh, players who are stars and whatever. But, you know, uh, 90% of the time, most of the time, um, I think this is one of your questions, Adrian, you know, the, the people I enjoyed working with most of the time, they're, they're very enjoyable. Mm. You know, they're just really nice people. Luke Lewis is the loveliest person. You know, you would hope him that yeah. he would be a really nice person. Yeah. He is. He is just a lovely guy, um, Matty Rogers. You know, down. You know, you've seen him on Survivor, and, and, yeah. and just the most down-to-earth guy. And I, and I knew him when he was 26, and the poor guy's writing his biography as yeah. he was changing yeah, from, yeah. from league to union. Um, you know, he, he was a real down-to-earth guy. So those sort of guys I respond to very good. I haven't had the bums rush from too many people uh, in, I've found in, in, in every or out.
0: every ex-player. I've- just about every exploit I've dealt with is tremendous I've no happy. That's, that's I can't different. say every I know and there, there a lot of yeah. them are oh, different oh, some, areas some, as well but
2: yeah some, the some ones
0: of we've had obviously we did an hour and a half with was great and then yeah. sitting and beers beers but I love talking yeah. about yeah. the yeah. well, the recently days. Yeah.
1: I interviewed uh, Steve Maven and Cole Bentley and especially with Cole because he <laughs> used to live in Cranbrook where I live <laughs> y- you have a 10-15 minute conversation before you actually start yeah. the, the and it really relaxes you it really gets in the mood and it, you sort of get a bit, bit of a better interview out of it, a couple of the English blokes as well are the exact same who are still playing today um, but again it, I guess I'm just reiterating the point, it's sort of a, a personality thing and it's not, you know, if it's purely down to business, doesn't mean they've got a bad personality but it, it, it just means th- that's what they want and that's what you've got to provide just getting straight down to business whereas others they, they want to be friendly, I yeah. guess
2: Yeah. Look, I think uh, the older players that I spoke to over the years who were say 10, 15, 20 years older than I were, they are all old school generals and they really appreciated the fact that you ring them up to yeah. talk about their career. Yeah. Um, a couple people didn't want to chat. you know it doesn't really matter who, who they were. Um, maybe I got them too late in their career oh, I don't want to go back over that or whatever. or maybe there's some underlying controversy. Oh, I don't want to go into that. Uh, but you know 99 times out of 100 they were all fantastic. Uh, Last question that I'll throw out. Um, Do you ever have any issue with sort of
0: libelous stuff or anywhere you go, oh, I don't want to publish that, I don't want to talk about that, or you just – everyone's pretty good?
2: No, no, your radar – Pops up pretty quick. Yeah, know. true crime. I mean, it, oh,
1: yeah. not your
2: especially true crime. Well, look, there's a lot of true crime in uh, football. <laughs> yeah. you know, is, it,
0: uh, is that a question for the editor, or is it somewhere you just go, you know, I won't, I won't touch that. Is it?
2: Oh, you've got to use your own judgment. Yeah. And usually, the you know, I, I did a biography which I won't name, and the best three stories didn't go in the biography. Yeah. And the biography didn't sell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I knew it wouldn't because the best stories didn't go in. If these stories had gone in, they would have been on the front page of the, the Daily Mirror. You know. Yeah for, yeah, for, yeah, for three weeks. <laughs> um, so, and you have an obligation if you're working with someone. I'm not trying to trap you or get you into trouble. yeah So, uh, you know, often you find yourself saying, "Well, we can't really share that story. Or, I don't think we should put that in, or, yeah. or or whatever." But you know, the odd, you know, usually what happens on tour and that sort of stuff, what players get up to, stays on tour, and, and some of it goes into a book, some of it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but. And we're not talking about um, killing anyone. We're, yeah, we're talking right. about you know fun and games that yep. boys get up to yep. uh, when they're high on t- testosterone. So yeah. uh, you've got you've got to protect. Like oh, I edited a book with um, Benji Marshall, and it wasn't a rugby league book; it was a how to play rugby league book. And he wanted to put a few stories in there, and I'm going, no mate, no. This is a kids' book. Yeah, you know, no, no. Um, and so i'm i'm editing him as he's going you know so you know you can be the hero of your own story but yeah. You know, I'm I'm not the sort of writer that goes off. Oh, fantastic! This is going to sell fifty thousand books yeah. because you go, this player will never live this down. And the thing
1: is, too, if you release something like that and have one player be dirty on you, then you've got a, a ton. The word gets around, and then it's very hard to find someone who wants to talk to you in the future. So,
2: well, you don't um, you don't double cross. You know, yeah. uh, players. You get to know players in conversation, and the player might say, "Look, I don't want this to be in the book, but this is what really happened on tour." Yeah. You know? Uh, why I got dropped, you know. So, you you, you know, you're not going to ride it and try and slip it through, you know. You yeah. you're going to say, well, how can we say Taking it? What would you be comfortable with, um, you yeah. know? Yeah. So there's a lot of negotiation, but you know. Those sort of riders don't last very long. Uh, one thing you have to be very careful of, and I found this out, when you're interviewing players, they go, Oh yeah, I scored two tries in that grand final. And you look up the records they, they did. <laughs> players yeah. players in, oh yeah, <clears throat> I, I came on after five minutes in that test match. Now you came on for the last five minutes. Yeah. So you must check up
0: I know park cricketers are still test. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <like that>. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: so so is. players tend to uh, I don't want to say exaggerate, but they tend to meld different things together. Yeah. And um, if you don't double-check and and do your your due diligence, you can um, goose yourself. Yeah. And then...
0: Do you ever have, um, after the it pro- all goes in, after you've submitted it, do you ever lay awake and go, oh, I could have done this differently, or you
2: just want oh, to absolutely. In? Or I spot this person's name, or the book comes in. At Murphy's Law and Publishing, the first page you open up, there's a it's mistake. Somewhere. You know, <laughs> yeah. it happens to me all the time. Yeah. Uh, and my wife, who's an English school teacher, um, first thing she says, I found a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, put it down. Put it, don't talk. Don't. Don't, don't even open it. Put it down. Because you just do... And that's, that's what happens with publishing. But you don't want any clangers. Like, I've, I've had a couple of clangers. The, the biggest clanger I wrote... and It must have been the last thing I wrote. I wrote an encyclopedia of rugby league players. Yeah. And the week before I went to print... Andrew Johns made his debut wow oh. yeah. <laughs> and, and killed him yeah and in the interview after it they said oh where'd you get your ability from he goes oh from my dad Les Johns and I put in the book son of Les Johns yeah who, who was a Canterbury player yeah and uh, he was only doing him up but by the time the book came out we knew it was wrong though. yeah I couldn't believe I wrote it I couldn't believe it but and then so again you, you didn't that. know at the time but that's like that's there forever publishing yeah, is forever yeah. It's yeah, yeah. always there, but uh, yeah, yeah, lots of fun and games, lots of sleepless nights. Nice. Yeah, and and the odd the odd mistake or two.
0: Yeah. Um, you've as I said you've been so generous to give us an hour and a half of your time. Uh, anything you want to plug before you? Go? Any, any what's on the horizon of Melbourne Cup book and?
2: Yeah, the look, I, I think the Lox's book on, is next book? on uh, racehorse uh, racehorse or mortals will, will be a nice little book for Christmas. And Tony Loxley, of course, who is doing a book called "Very Hard Men" of the 1980s, and he's got a lot of old players from that era at yeah. Day. Davidson and, and that to give their reminiscences yep. uh, you know Tony's a good guy and he's um, trying to uh, self-publish when a lot of the big publishers aren't publishing this material yeah. anymore your only chance to get this material is to support publishers like Tony so, yep. uh, I'm and, and, happy and that's to, lovely happy to work it, both with
0: him. with him and Dan it's it's essentially labour of love it's not, they're not oh, yeah. there to make money they're just there to yeah. do something they're really passionate about And the idea is not to, to
2: lose money yeah. Yeah. Exactly. and but I'm sure uh,
1: we'll see you at that event
0: too so, uh, yeah, yeah, as yeah. Launch. Yeah. every yeah. chance to be the book so thank you so much for joining us uh, Al, we'll um, I'll kick back and have a quick chat and uh, let everyone go but thank you hopefully if you want to come and join us on one of the weekly shows you're more than welcome to come and talk two hours of actual footy <laughs> no, Mate, you'll,
2: you'll, you'll never get home if you get me start to. Oh, uh, it's well, long enough already But a pleasure guys to talk and thanks for the invitation again Thank you